I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where our historians explore their darker and angrier side the podcast where we take on history and myth and what we think about it. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I am here with my ever-loyal co-host and fellow traveller into legend, Kyle Glover. Hello. So we're rounding off Series 8 this week with a dark subject. We've covered the history of the Holocaust before with Alina and Waitman, and we've covered massacres with Russell Phillips. And today we're going to be talking one of the most poignant and famous Nazi war crime incidents of the war. Today, we are joined by historian and author of Silent Village, Life and Death in Occupied France, Robert Pike. Robert, welcome to History Rage. Hi, thanks for having me on. You're welcome. (laughs) Sounding nervous already there. (laughs) You're in good hands. You're in good hands. (laughs) Well, you came to us by recommendation from Kate Vigas some time ago now, as she came on in Series 3, but we have finally managed to get you here. So just for all our... uh, newcomers out there both new listeners and people not of a second world war band could you give us an intro to you and your area of expertise and and kind of how you ended up in it yeah i i've kind of covered things uh the the, the wrong way around i i i started off um i used to be a, a teacher like a, a french teacher in a in a secondary school and then i came into history because i well i i i was i i was doing some bits of research kind of as a as a hobby really going yeah. back just trying to take down some stories of of people that I'd met when I was a student in France as an undergraduate and taking down some stories about resistance and then from there I ended up writing um, a book about about the French resistance in the area of the Dordogne mm. and then uh, the second book kind of came from that it was a subject I'd always wanted to write about and then I've I've kind of come back into academia having left teaching uh, and done some other bits and pieces in my life and kind of uh, very much related to education and I came into into academia having having done a fair bit of of of, of history if you mm. like the research um into my books kind of thought well I may as well kind of try and formalize that and I'm actually doing doctoral work now I'm doing my PhD now yeah uh, having done done these two books so yeah as i said it, it's kind of the wrong way around to do things but um it's worked so far yeah i mean a lot of uh, a lot of people do their phd and that is their primary research you've done your primary research twice and oh, then yes. got to see the qualification for it yeah i know i did kind of think perhaps i should have been just given my phd but you know, <laughs> yeah i mean I you've earned it yeah well, there we are Oh, well, I, I, I wish you luck with that. Some more, you know, some more research. Okay, so, so welcome aboard. And like I say, let's, let, let's kick this topic off as, as dark as it is as a season ender. But, you know, everybody gets a fortnight to recover from it. <laughs> so would you please tell us, Robert, then, what it is you wish people would just get over? Well, the, the, 
massacre of Orhodosuglan is quite well known, really, in the French and English-speaking world. Mm. But, you know, relatively well well known. But there's this continual kind of explanation which goes with it, which is, well, it's either one of two things. It's either that the the massacre was was was, was carried out on the wrong village. It should have been Orhodosuvert, which was kind of about 30 miles to the southwest of Orhodosuvert. Mm. Well, I'll stick with that one for a minute. That that yeah. particular rumor, that that's the main one, and 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 it, I still, you know, I, I I've been doing a lot of work with with um, people in Orhodor, and thousands of people visit this place every year as they sort of go go through France or they they go there for on school trips and things, particularly French school children. And French school tr- children are still being told this ridiculous idea that the SS Das Reich like a panzer division would have gone completely the wrong direction, accidentally, you know, surrounded and destroyed the the wrong the wrong village. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of just it's one of these rumors, which uh, there are others which we'll get onto later. Mm. But it kind of has it's made it's made this this place almost a little bit of a sort of morbid fascination, really, yeah. a, a place that people go to because there's this kind of air of mystery around it. And and that's not really what it, it it should. It's not what it was certainly kind of preserved for. Um, mm. It's and it's not. It completely bypasses what the real reason for this was. And if if you just do a little bit of history, if you just do a little bit of you know the boring mundane stuff, you'll quite quickly see that that wasn't. It couldn't have been the reason for this for this uh, event, you know. And. Um, they they know their targets, don't they? I mean, it's, it's oh, yeah. not a mistake that they're going to make. No, and it it was you know it's such a clearly you look at the all, all of the 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 evidence you look at all of the the clues uh, you know you've got it the, the thing with 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 a, an issue with a, a subject like this is not 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 so much in English but in French so many books have been written about this one this one place. Mm. Very few people have kind of gone back to the actual primary evidence, of which there's loads. You know, there's loads of testimony. There's loads of, you know, reports done, you know, on the ground there and there. And there's, there's, there's so much, sort of, so many witness statements and things like that that you can go back to and, and you can see where these rumours sort of all, all came from. But but the, the trouble with a thing like Orbador is so many books have been written that they kind of just compound each other. You know, there's a new one coming out. I noticed that I don't, I don't, I'm not going to say names or anything, but there's a new one coming out. I think later in the year, which is about something about gold being, you know, discovered, or someone, someone in the Das Reich, you know, had found gold and it had been stolen from them. Which goes back to a 1988 book, which, which yeah. is, in English. I mean, it's just taken another rumor mm. and, and and spreading, it. and it's just ridiculous. You know, it, as a historian, you know, I. I went back to this story and I did it. I actually went into it with a fairly open mind with not really knowing exactly what I was trying to do. But I came out of it looking at the put, putting this event in its historical context. And if you put it into its proper historical context and you look at all of the various things that were going on and what, you know, why something like this might have happened, mm. um, you, you, you can kind of solve that mystery quite quickly. There's no mystery around it. You know? um, so yeah, we'll get get straight into things then. Um, you said earlier it, it was the wrong village, the wrong Orador. What what is what? Uh, there's no right one, but what was the village they were supposed to be going after, and what? How did things transpire? Well, it's kind of the other way yeah. around. Mm. This was the right. Yeah, Orador. this was the one they were after. Orador is actually a, a relatively common name mm. for a village in that part. Of France, it it kind of comes from the Latin. It's kind of like a prayer, uh, a, a place of prayer. Mm. So there's quite a few of them around, like some pretty small ones. But there's one about thirty miles to the southwest, which um, later on, well, even probably at this time, it was it, it was quite well known for having quite a lot of Maki, um, as in the fighting mm. French resistance, yeah. um, guerrilla fighters, if you like, um, activity around it and. There, there were some some pretty kind of um, significant 
confrontations took place in and around that 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 place. But that that's that was a a, a fair bit bigger, I'd say. But you know, th- this place Orodosuglan, which is it's about eleven miles outside of Limoges, it, it was on the way to where the Estes yeah. Reich were going next. And you know, you wouldn't kind of go back on yourself. Because the the, the Das Reich were moving up through France, having you know D Day had just happened on the sixth of June, mm-hmm. um, so about four days before the massacre, they, they'd been ordered to move up through France towards Normandy. Although, uh, and this is quite a key thing, they weren't told to go there immediately. They were told to deal with the resistance in the area the best they could first, because that's what the that's what the SS were all about. At the end of the day, was was um, really uh, going after. Yeah, uh, kind of distance and those sorts of, of, of issues. So, so this, you know, they would have been moving in the wrong direction if they'd gone to Orde Surveil. And and this this rumor came out. I, I, going back, going back to the witness statements, I've been able to kind of trace it right back mm. to just a few people kind of talking about this as a as a possibility and, and in their police interviews mentioning you know perhaps it it was this and and i've heard it it, it was this there was so much rumor you know about what had happened and why but this was one of the few rumors that actually wasn't implanted by by the nazis but by the ss or by i should say by the wehrmacht as well because the wehrmacht weren't very happy about this 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 massacre having happened you know it, it this this was the SS that that came in and, and and did this. This wasn't how the Wehrmacht worked, and this is one of the the, the, the reasons that it, it was so impactful. Was uh, this kind of thing had been going on in East Germany, but uh, sorry, in East East Europe, but um, Eastern the countries mm-hmm. of Eastern Europe yeah. where the Das Reich had been, but France was kind of different, and it kind of had this different relationship with Germany. So the Wehrmacht weren't happy about about you know the, the, the ordinary German army. We're like, well, come on, this 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 is too much for for a country that we've that we've been kind of occupying for this this amount of time, and yeah, so so it what so it, this this idea that it's the wrong orador has actually softened the blow in some ways through through the decades because it's kind of it's almost taken some of the sting away from what from what. The Germans, what the Nazis did in this in this place, it kind of deflects some of this stuff away, and it yeah. it's kind of saying, well, in Orodosuver, there was quite a lot of resistance around that area. Therefore, you know, yeah, you, you think there's an element of you know, at Orodosuver, there was quite a lot of resistance. It you can understand them going and massacring that, whereas clearly they've massacred this. It can't be an act of evil. It must be a mistake. Yeah, because. Any association with the resistance and Orodosuglan is a touchy subject for that reason. Mm-hmm. As soon as as soon as you talk about resistance in the area, you are opening yourself, or they would be opening themselves up to having played some role in what happened. You know, there's a difference in war, uh, and and th- th- things had kind of got a bit uh, had changed a little bit. The, the Germans had been allowed. To, a much freer reign in terms of the kind of the, the levels of reprisals and the, the reasons for the reprisals that, that they could they could give. Mm. They'd got pretty violent in in France, you know, in, during the, the the sort of few months before. But as soon as you start talking about wiping out a whole village, you know, you, you you're onto war crime level, aren't you? you yeah. This 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 idea of it being the wrong orador, though, kind of yeah, had it been a matter of there had been a, a lot of resistance activity in this village, and and there there were other rumours flying around a kidnap of a of a major, you know, and and um, and and things like that. This this major um, camp who was kidnapped the night before the operation. I mean, actually, he was kidnapped quite a way away from Orodosuglan. You know, it wasn't nearby. Yeah. It was on the other side of Limoges, mm-hmm. you know. So it it kind of tied up as far as the the the, the, the leaders of the Das Reich were concerned, and, and this this Orador Suglan or this Orador Sever um, thing, it, 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 they well why deny it? You know, it's another rumor that's spinning around that, that helps 
kind yeah. of explain why they might have done this this horrific thing. So I'm just thinking for the you know for for the non Second World War types that are out there. I mean, we all know Oridosiglan, but can you give us the detail? Can you give us kind of the the when and what happened? Yeah, I mean, actually, if you watch the the first five minutes of World at War, you'll see mm. Oridosiglan. Yeah. With Lawrence Olivier and kind of um, talking about it, yeah, it's um, so it, it, it's a, a village which is uh, about eleven miles, as I say, outside of, of Limoges, um, which is kind of kind of southwest, but it's it's a bit more central than kind of really south. And it it was so. I'm um, looking at it now. There are now two of Glands. There's the new village which they built after the, the massacre, and there's mm-hmm. the old. The, the one that was preserved. And this village, as it existed then, was, uh, it probably had about, around, be, between about 650 to a, to a 1,000 people, depending on what you kind of included as the village. You had, because in, in those days, you had a, a what they called a borg, and then you had kind of little hamlets around um, which was yeah. kind of all, and, and farm, well, scattered around in a very rural area. Hmm. But Orodor-sur-Glan was 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 quite interesting. It, it had a it, because it had this this tram, which was inaugurated just in, in, 1911, in 1911, and it was just a, a, quite a nice place on the side of a, of a river. Lots of people came to Orodor-sur-Glan from from the city. It was kind of a it had a real kind of, I suppose. A, 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 a slightly better economy than than other villages, mm-hmm. which weren't on the tram route. It had a good restaurant, quite a well known restaurant, well, a, a, a number of restaurants, but one that was particularly well known. People used to go there to fish, to swim in the Glan, which is the river. People were, you know, which is one of the reasons why people were there in in, in on the day in nineteen forty four who come come from the city. But what had happened as well during during the the period of occupation, things had changed quite a lot. In that we'd had quite a lot of refugees coming there from um, Alsace Lorraine for for ver- various points. Yep. Refugees came from Alsace Lorraine. You had quite a lot of Spanish people had come there. You had people from Paris. You had children who'd been sent to the village for safety. You know from from cities that were being targeted by by bombs, including Paris, mm. Avignon. Moj itself, so so the the, the popular and, and also you had men who were still prisoners of war, so families had kind of adapted a little bit. They 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 were still kind of chairs missing and and at, at the dinner table, but it was a fairly well-to-do village really, in comparison with a lot of other villages in that part of the world, which which is a very which was a very sort of poor part of part of the world yeah. in a way. Because of the, 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 the commerce with the city, um, it was probably better off than other villages of the same size. So what happened at the actual massacre itself then? So on, on, on the 10th, it, it, was, it was a Saturday. And the, I mean, the events leading up to it, I could, I could go through it, but I would take a little bit of a while. I'll just mm-hmm. talk about the actual day itself first. It was around lunchtime, and people were just, you know, the people people were fairly positive because of D Day having happened. Yeah, and, and no Germans at all. No, you know, there the, never been a German in the village as as far as as most people had seen. Um, and I, you know, I, I've seen no evidence that there there were ever any. Um, and then suddenly these these half tracks and various um, vehicles arrived from from Limoges from the direction of Limoges. And circled, kind of, they stopped at various points around the village, and then they created this kind of uh, kind of cordon around the village, which didn't just take in the village; it also took in various hamlets as well and farms. Not not the not the entire kind of commune, but but just just parts of it. So so some of some of these vehicles went into the, the village centre. Most were. Sort of parked around, and then people were were brought to the village, the what's called the Champ de Foire, which is the kind of the, the the village square, if you like, and people were rounded up and brought there very calmly. They were told that this was you know, well, they were told various things. 
Some people were told it was an identity check. Some people were told that, that you know, they, there was just, there was nothing to fear, that, that it was a, a pretty normal search. And once the population was gathered, including, I should say, all the children were in school that day. So the children were marched up as well, kind of hand in hand to the Champ de Foire. And they were told that there was go that, 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 that there was this information that there were um, arms being hidden in the village by by the resistance, and, and the village would be properly searched, which is what everyone kind of w- w- was fairly reassured. Despite there being machine guns set up in the village square, hmm. that people were relatively reassured that you know there, there's there's not any re- resistance here, so it should it, it'll be okay. It's, there's nothing to really worry about. And this went on until, uh, I mean, the, 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 the mayor was asked for some, some hostages and he refused. But basically, this, the, the, they went off and kind of did this bit of a search. Didn't take them that long before they came back. They separated the population, men, um, women and children under the age of about 16 were put into the church. They were taken down to the church. The men were made to make it, to wait longer. And then they were divided up into five groups and taken to these various barns and door houses, if you like, mm-hmm. around the village. And then at, I think it was about, uh, uh, it was a little bit later, about four o'clock. I, I, I still haven't really been able to totally be sure which, which order things happened in, but, but the, 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 the men who'd, ha- who'd been made to wait quite a long time with guns sort of trained on them were shot and in these various places. I, I think that happened first. And then a little bit later on in the church, a, a device was rolled in. Uh, well, not rolled in, it was carried in and put on a table. And bear in mind, there were a lot of people in this church, quite a small church, a lot of children, a lot of women. You know, it was very upsetting. And the device was uh, kind of set alight. It asphyxiated a lot of people, but then a lot of people were kind of panicking, running around. The, the, they, they came in, they, they, they shot around the church. Yeah. Once they were happy that most people were dead, they started setting fire. Well, they, they brought in furniture, piled it all up onto the bodies and, and started setting it on fire. And that, that's what they did in the barns as well with the men. They put any kind of combustible materials that they could find. They let all the, the animals go free, but they put any kind of anything wooden on top of the bodies in these in these barns and also some phosphate, which they piled on top of them as well yeah. and set fire to them. And then they set fire to the whole village. Wow. So it was amazing that anyone escaped but there were enough people who escaped for us to pretty much be able to piece together exactly what what went on because six men got out of one of the barns and how they survived I I just well you know it's amazing that they did survive having had these bodies fall on top of them I mean it was generally people who were stood at the back yeah Mm. Who, who had bodies fallen on top of them. One of them, Robert Ebra, um, he just died earlier this year, actually. Um, he's He was someone who I, I talked to for, for the book. Um, he was one of those who escaped from the barn. And from the church, only one woman escaped from the church. Um, and she was a grandmother, actually. She'd just seen her two daughters and her grandson, baby grandson, sort of shot in front of her. But, but there were also other people in the village who had hidden who saw things from other kind of viewpoints. And they're quite, quite important testimonies as well. So, I mean, we go back to this rumour that it's the wrong orador. First of all, did the SS ever actually claim that? Um, and secondly, you mentioned earlier the events leading up to it. It's kind of, so to what was there, what was the SS reasoning behind the massacre? as, you know, as sensible as we can make anything that the SS come out with. but I mean, that's quite an yes. important point because I think I think they were quite happy to 
create a, uh, various stories, various reasons for this happening and, and just let it buzz around. And, and actually, even into the 1980s, you know, 1990s, when the, the, the Das Reich were having their reunions, you know, still everyone was sticking to the same stories, you know, that this was, uh, this was an act of reprisal. Hmm. Um, as an act of reprisal, it would probably, you know, would still have been a war, war crime. Yeah. But there, there were various rumours, as, as we've already mentioned. There there had been resistance activity in the region. So so we need to sort of zoom back outwards to kind of see what was going on. This this part of France, the Limousin, kind of Haute-Vienne, Dordogne, Lotte, Quite an era around Brent Cohes. It was it was a bit of a, a resistance hotbed, and also the Das Reich, which had, which had been, hadn't been in France for that long, they'd been brought to to the south of France almost as a bit of a rest period, rest mm-hmm. and recruitment before they were to be redeployed elsewhere. Now I'm no military mm-hmm. historian at all. But that, that's my understanding. So there was there were people coming in from um, recruits that had come in from from Eastern Europe who who were in the SS Das Reich, but there were also French people who were being recruited in um, forcibly, uh, particularly from Alsace Lorraine. So they were ordered to 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 go up up to Normandy once this once D Day happened. But as as you know, you know the nature of the SS was that. They, I mean, they were involved, obviously, in the Holocaust and that kind of thing. They, they, they were elite soldiers, and they were also used to eliminate any kind of resistance group. Mm-hmm. So, so they, they were in the area, and when, when it was recognised that the, that the resistance is part of France was, was were particularly problematic. And this had happened kind of back in March of the of nineteen forty four, and uh, there had been other visits by by other kind of Nazi divisions who'd, who'd come into the area and had been pretty brutal, nothing like Ohodor, but had been pretty brutal. They had burned down whole villages, but they hadn't kind of massacred populations. They, they, they'd executed. They'd done things kind of, if you like, within the rules of, of war, if you like. Yeah. The, but but, but the, the Das Reich, they were to move north. They were to... Do some cleanup before they before they really kind of moved, and the thing is with the maquis as it had developed in that part of France was that you couldn't take the maquis on head on. You know they they were generally small and mobile groups at this point. This was kind of just as the maquis was developing in, into kind of you know more more numbers, but but before. Before D-Day, before pe- loads of people joined them, they were generally smaller groups, and and actually they, they could disappear back into the forest. They, you know, their 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 tactics were to, as often trained by guerrillas from 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 Spain who'd come over in the in the late thirties, was to kind of hit from behind or from the side, and then and then flee, and to, to pin to pin them down. Um, the Germans very rarely did that. They they tended to send out the GMR, the the, the French group uh, de réserve, to go out and actually kind of fight the Maquis. But the other thing they decided to do was that if you're going to kind of if you're going to target the Maquis, the best yeah. way to do it would be to target the population, because the Maquis couldn't exist without the population. The population supplied them; they provided shelter. They provide, you know, they hid arms, they hid people. So farmers, ordinary villagers, you know, would be, or if you like, the, the, the new target. Because that would then, and, and it worked. It worked in March and April. It was so brutal that, that some of the more famous kind of Mackie mm-hmm. leaders put their hands up and said, no, we can't, we can't do this. You know, we cannot put our, Civilians in this kind of well, they're all civilians, but our 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 families, our, our normal people in in harm's way like this. So you know there was some some Mackie groups had, had, had settled back, others were yeah. still kind of um, quite active. But but this was 
the yeah. Orador was chosen. Well, it wasn't chosen. It was. It was just that there was a an order for a brutal and lasting strike, something that was going to really show the population the power of this group that was coming through France. So it didn't matter where it was. It didn't matter where it was, and 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 you know, there's there's lots of evidence that suggests that it was going to be Saint-Junien, which was the nearby town. Now, in Saint-Junien, there, there had been some Mackie activity on the 8th of June. Um, we're talking fairly small. We're talking some firing on some soldiers. I think one soldier was, was killed. There have been sporadic bits of Mackie activity in and around that that little area there, but... There wasn't much. No, it, it it was decided in Limoges. The place was chosen. It was probably selected, or it was probably the the SS was probably advised on it mainly by by French members of the milice. We imagine, and um, probably someone called Jean Filiol was very involved in choosing this place. And and really, it was it, as I said earlier, it's on the way to the next mm. stop. It was. The right size; it was easily surroundable. When they when they arrived in Saint Junior, they realised they couldn't do it there. It's just too big, um, and because it was more of a town, there was some some urban Mackie. Mm. Very unusual to get to get any Mackie in towns, but there was a little bit in Saint Junior. So they thought there was a possibility there'd be some fight back there. Orodo, none. They knew there was no they knew there was no resistance there. They knew there was no Mackie nearby. Yeah, yeah. really, within about ten miles, which was a long, long, long way when. The Mackie didn't have petrol and it was difficult to get, you know, to move around. Yeah. Yeah. They knew there'd be no one to fight back. There'd be no one to fight back. It was, it was a fairly easy target. It was a, it had a bit of a soft underbelly, yeah. you know, and, and it was going to be an easy place to go and circle, do what they needed to do. They, they, they intended to wipe the place off the face of the earth, that this, this village would never again exist. And in fact, you know, they didn't do it all yeah. in one day. They came back came back the following day. They, they came back and made sure that they any bodies that were left in the street were shoved into ovens or shoved down wells or they were, they were put into to shallow graves. They were determined that they piled the bodies up into these kind of piles to make sure that you could not identify these bodies. And we know this because some people got, got, got in, it, it, even though they, they were meant to be going in and it was incredibly dangerous, some people got into the town into the village, I should say, be, between the kind of the main mm. massacre and the, the following days. And we know from what they saw compared to what people saw the following day that there have been clear up operations where these bodies have been disposed of, you know, children's bodies put into put onto the furnace from where they'd lit, laid in the street so that you could not identify anybody. So... In in a trial in 1983, there were very it was very little kind of uh, in in the way of of justice. But there was one trial. There, there was mm. a trial in 1952, which was more. It was a military tribunal, um, really more more the kind of the soldiers that have been identified as being there, not 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 the leaders of the SS Reich, but there, there were some yeah. Alsace, there were some Germans, um, but there was another one in 1953 where. Uh, there was a, a trial in East Germany, Heinz Barth, and he was kind of the highest ranking Nazi that was ever put on trial for this. And um, he he admitted, he said, you know, we left there. We were very surprised to find out there were any survivors. We left there on the understanding that there were no survivors. You know, so, mm. so, so he opened up this new understanding of it, really, which is why I get so angry that, People are still kind of saying, well, you know, showing children around there and saying, well, this was the wrong orador and there's this mystery. Why did they do it? Was it to find gold? You know, it's just. Yeah. yeah when even the guy's been on trial and said, this is where we yeah. went. This is why we did it. And this is why yeah. we left. He's still stuck to the guns of the SS that, you know, we went there because of resistance. But, but he said, you know, we went there and we meant to, there wasn't meant to be any survivors. They were they were serious, by the way, about this. The the the, the pe- when they found out that there had been some survivors, they weren't happy. The the, the mm. SS and the milice 
the, the police were, were tasked with tracking down the survivors who were in hospital or, or were in, in homes, and, and they had to be hidden. Like, yeah. You know, Madame Rufanche, who escaped from the window from the furnace and had been shot outside the church still and left for dead, they had to hide her even when she was in hospital because they were worried that the police were going to go in and, and you know, try and eliminate her. Because So even following on from this then, there is once they become aware that there are, what, seven survivors that, that we know about, then there's a manhunt for them. Essentially, yeah. There, 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 there was, um, there was, they were in real danger. I don't know for how many days that was the case because as soon as their testimonies were out there, you know, it, it was known. I don't, I don't, I, yeah. I think Madame Rufanche was put in one hospital and moved back to Limoges after about a week or 10 days or something. But certainly, yeah, I mean, it, they, 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 but there were more survivors. There were far more eyewitnesses mm. than, you know, were initially reported. And, and it kind of, it's only when you go looking for them that you realize that, for example, there was a man who'd broken his leg, a young man who'd broken his leg playing football the, the, the week before. They should have been play, uh, playing football the day afterwards. He wouldn't have been playing because he'd broken his leg. But he was upstairs in a, in a, in a, in a building which overlooked the Champ de Foire. So he had seen the roundup. He had seen everything that happened. He even saw it when some cyclists arrived and were brought into this, the middle of the town halfway through the massacre and lined up and then just shot in the town. So, you know, he saw all that. And the Germans would never have, I keep saying the Germans, I've got to be careful. The, the, you know, the, 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 the SS would, yeah. wouldn't have expected that that kind of thing would have been seen. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So why did the French then go on to preserve the village rather than, say, rebuild it or anything like that, but keep it as... That almost lasting monument that it is today. What what was the thinking behind doing that at the time? The decision was made by General de Gaulle before he was kind of you know president or any of that kind of thing. It was before even the end of the, of the war, before the liberation of Paris. I think his first visit, and he he saw he saw it, and 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 there were plans afoot. Some of the the the, the families of survivors had kind of put this idea together that perhaps we should preserve it. And he kind of agreed with the idea. It was meant to be a representation of what France had suffered. He saw it as as this representation of France's suffering under German occupation. Mm-hmm. And there, there, was a, there were a couple of images that, that de Gaulle particularly wanted as France came out of occupation. One was... That rural, that France really was was a rural country, with a lot of like you know the the, mm-hmm. the republican kind of ideal of these rural places. And Orador was kind of represented in in the literature that was produced after the the massacre as being one of these idyllic places that represented the French kind of ideal. So yeah. there was that this this idea that France was that Orodostriglan represented France's martyrdom, and the yeah. the victims were all called you know the martyrs 
They were all awarded the the, the, the title of Mort pour la France, dead, died for France. Uh, the village was was you know kind of awarded a special status as as well. There was also at the yeah. same time De Gaulle was trying to represent this idea of France résistante, the idea that the whole of France had risen up and 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 apart from apart from a, a, a small minority of bad apples, France risen up and liberated itself. Yeah. You know that was a real De Gaulle thing, and. Um, yeah, neatly overlooking the vast quantities of Vichy that that there yeah. were, and 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 you know, France, the 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 historiography of occupied France is, you know, is is really quite complicated. Yes, you know, just just as occupied France was very very complicated. You know, you can't look back at it and think, well. There were people, you know, you were either on one side or the other. Like that, that was that was kind of the initial idea was that you either were one of us, as in France Résistante. You know, you might not have been, you know, one of the fighters, but but this this you were either one of those or you were a traitor. You were you, you were a collaborator. And you know, research has shown quite clearly that the numbers of people who resisted were very very small. And the numbers of people who collaborated were very, very small. And also, right. everyone probably did a bit of everything at, at different points. You know, most people just survived. Most people got yeah. by. Most people had to put the you know you had to put food on the table. You had to do what you had to do. And um, you know, so so some people we we know a lot of people joined the, the resistance late on. You know, um, yeah, and we know that a lot of people kind of who 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 may well have not been seen in a particularly favourable light after the war changed their kind of positioning in society. And just coming back to my book very briefly, mm-hmm. that that was one of the, the things that I wanted to record in this book. My uh, kind of view of Ordo as I kind of got to know it was that this was kind of a place that was preserved at a moment in time. If you imagine somewhere like Pompeii, where the, yeah. everyone stays as they were at that moment, this was a bit like that. In that we we knew exact we know exactly who was there. We know exactly who died. We know exactly what people were doing as jobs, or you know who was friends with who, etc at that moment in time, where most villages changed. You know, I talked about how Orador changed between 1940 and 1944, but most other villages in France changed beyond that. So a lot of people suddenly found themselves in the resistance or found themselves, you know, managed to sort of change their social position. And that didn't happen in Orador. So we had quite a, you know, looking at it, I'm looking at, the way I wrote this book was that the first half was about Orador before the massacre. Part of me wanted to stop there, actually. Yeah. It was about what the village was, because you had to show the village warts mm. and all, really. And this is going back to that mundanity of, 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 of historical research. You've got to understand what who was there and why and what was going on, because... If you don't, they all just get under this martyrdom cloak. Yeah. And it doesn't really tell us anything. And then we don't understand why or why, why de Gaulle did this or what, what it means that, 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 you know, it was memorialized in a, in a, in a strange kind of way that, that nowhere else was. You know, I think you've got to get under the surface. And, and to do, if you do that, then you can learn so much more about a place. So yeah, this frozen in time aspect of it is something that's almost come out of come out of this De Gaulle's decision, and part of me thinks of him turning in his grave really at the thought that we are looking now at that there were collaborators in Orador. Yeah, there were people who who were kind of in the resistance in Orador. There were people. Yeah. There were in fact French people. Yeah, in Orador. Yeah, it was a. a Completely normal mixture of Vichy occupied of, of of German occupied Vichy France. You know, you had Jews living there, 
some openly, some in hiding. You had men who were escaping the 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 forced work service in Germany. They were there too. They were hide, some were hiding out, some were living. There were escaped prisoners of war there. There were there were Spanish people there who'd come over from from you know Franco's Spain. There were all sorts of pe- people there, and there were politicians there who were Petanists. <clears throat> there were lots of yeah. people who were very supportive of Petain, even at the time of the massacre. You know, a lot of people in France still believed in Petain. They still believed, perhaps less so by by, by this point, yeah. but certainly into 1944, who, who who still believed that he was he was the man. He was kind of playing a bit of a dub, double game. And um, all that was there in Ordor, if you look under the surface. So that's where I kind of compare it to like a moment in time. And, and, and it's a really interesting kind of yeah. way of looking at this massacre because I really focused on the victims and I didn't focus at all mm-hmm. on the Das Reich. Which is one of the things I found interesting, actually, because uh, when I first like looked at the synopsis and so forth, I, I was reminded very much of Hallie Rubenhold's book on the five, where she looks mm. at the women and not the not the identity of the killer, which I found mm. quite intriguing. Um, so you've touched on that there were members of the resistance there. Could you go into a bit more detail about them? Uh, alternatively, could you tell us the opposite, the... The bad apples you talked about, the Melis, are they called? Who are those guys? What were they up to? Yeah, I mean, the Melis were... I mean, as soon as we had Vichy France, we had people working mm. for Vichy France and we had different levels of police. The Melis were generally... Well, they were often kind of young men who were... It, it became a bit of a uniform kind of section which grew from... from um, Without going into the history of it, it, it was a bit of a police, a bit of a police force. But there weren't really any police in mm. Orador, and there weren't particularly very many that came to Orador that we know of. The resistance, also, we know that there wasn't really very much. We we know there wasn't very much in terms of Mackie yeah. in the area. The the nearest was probably about ten ten miles to the north, or in San Julian yes. actually, but. But we do know that that there was, and, and we, we, we've only found out about this quite recently, there was an, an, an active kind of cell of the Armée Secrète. Now, the Armée Secrète is the kind of the Gaullist resistance. Mm-hmm. And the, the difference between the Gaullist resistance and the Communist resistance is that the Gaullist resistance was all about preparing for, for, for D-Day. It was about getting things ready really and 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 for most for most of the occupation um it, it worked with things like spreading propaganda recruiting young men training people up um kind of the soe tended to kind of deal more readily with the gaullist resistance the the, the communist resistance tended to the fdp tended to they 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 wanted to do things kind of here and now and they they were a bit more kind of militant militant exactly so there was an AS kind of little cell, um, and and I found some some documentation on it, and we've we've looked at it. We're not surprised at the names that are on there. There's only perhaps one name, and we're talking about ten people probably. Yeah, we 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 suspected most of them were were were, were in it, and they probably were doing things like meetings, spreading, you know, giving out propaganda trying to change people's mind. But in a place like Orador, it just didn't matter because people had always had open conversations about whether they supported Petan or not. They, they might have got heated, but they were conversations. That's kind of as far as it went. The fact that we had Jewish people living in the street and actually one of the families that, that were always blamed for being Petanist, you know, we found out, you know, that they were really good friends with this Jewish family. You know, it, you this is why occupied France is complicated, you know. It, it, yeah. You'd be Petanist, but 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 be very protective of a Jewish friend, you know. Just because you were Petanist, it didn't make you someone who wanted to transport to transport the Jews. So there was certainly no um, armed resistance in Ordosuglan, mm-hmm. where we 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 are we are 
pretty 100%. And I, I mean, actually, a lot of the recent literature in France on a Rodorso gland, you know, <clears throat> I've got quite a few of them on the bookshelf behind you, you know, the, the mystery of Orador, the yeah. try, people trying to solve why it happened. And, and it goes down that road of, you know, trying to put resistance there. And and I, I interviewed Robert Epra for the for the book, and when I sat down with him, the first thing he said to me is, well, you know, if you're going to tell me that there was resistance in Orodor Soglan, you're going to have to prove it to me. <laughs> you know, this yeah. is the man who'd grown yeah. up there. <laughs> you know, he'd been 19 at the time, he knew, he knew the place. Mm. And I, I said, you know, I'm not here for that. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, that's not my, that's not what I'm here for. Yeah. So mo- moving sort of from Orodor then to Orodor now, yeah, you know, and I appreciate this might be this might be some form of a daft question, but do you know what, Robert, you suggested it to me, so I'm <laughs> going to ask it. So, so why still in in 2023 does it still need to be there? Why is it such an important name in in the French history now? It represents it represents the it's had to change in meanings over the years. Yeah. But now it represents the danger of fascism, the danger of France becoming um, kind of a right-wing state, if you like. There's yeah. a, a lot of protests in France at the moment. You know, the French get up in arms about about anything which which looks like they're moving too too far right-wing. So it kind of yeah. represents, and it's it's, it's entered the the French vocabulary, I I, I think. Almost the everyday vocabulary, not not just the, the the vocabulary of historians, as being a place that you should know about. You know, there was a, a politician I can't remember the details now, but but who would talking about Orador put it in the wrong department. She mentioned that it was in the choirs, I think, and she was pilloried in the press about this. Mm. You know, it really affected her, her her prospects. President Zelensky, when he addressed the the French Parliament, you know, he talked about Orador. He used it as a reference point for French people. So even though it's kind of, its meaning has changed, I think it still has such a strong meaning to the French people. It, it holds such a, a unique place in their history. It represents what can happen. And the likes of Macron, Will will quote Orador as being, yeah. you know, look what can happen, and 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 this is kind of what happened during the Ukrainian, the invasion of the Ukraine was that you know in, in the French press Orador was very much compared to, you know, the the the, the massacres at the beginning of that that conflict. Yeah. Okay, right, Kyle, you've got you've got this week's controversy question, then, haven't you? I suppose there's not much chance of the French letting the ruins fall into rubble, fall into disrepair, and be forgotten. Do you know what? It's it's we're at a really a really important point in time now. I I was there a couple of months ago, and I was talking to the president of the uh, association um, of the families, you know, it's quite, it's quite a major kind of operational out now, but, but he had been the day before he'd been at the Elysee in Paris and um, he'd been meeting um, with the government with, with the mayor of Orador about this, the fact that the, 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 it, the, the buildings mm-hmm. had degraded to such an extent, a lot of work now. I mean, the church, I, th- I think it's now been, finished but there's been a lot of work on the church recently for example so i mean i i first went there in 1992 93 i think it probably was um with my parents and it looks very different now to them mm-hmm. it's lost you know the 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 the, 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 the items the, the bicycles the sewing machines are kind of there are fewer of them yeah and they 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 really do look less immediate like the place has lost its immediacy a lot of the signs have disappeared now it kind of almost looks a little bit kind of medieval in a way yeah it's like more of a more of a ghost town without the story now than that snapshot of a moment in time that it used to be yeah yeah and i think um 
what what is happening now is that the the direction uh, direction doesn't really translate is that the uh, the management of the museum there the centre de la mémoire have recognized that the time has come to uh, change the nature of what they're trying to get people to to see first of all mm-hmm. i.e. understand it for what it was as a village um and less just telling a story of of the war which i'm really pleased about because that's something that i was you know keen on doing with with, with my writing and um they they are concentrating a little bit more now on things like objects. They're bringing some of this stuff inside and preserving it. Yeah. The whether Benoit Sadri and uh, Philippe Lacroix, who who were who, who went to the the government recently, will get the funding that they would need, and we are talking a lot of money to secure the rubble, the remains of the building itself. I I, I don't know. I, I I think they probably will, but. I think you're right. I don't think it'll ever be torn down. But I think time will just take it. Yeah, there's got to come a point, I think, where you, where, where you, the, re- the restoration kind of defeats what it was, it, it was left there to do. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's still visited by so many people. Yeah. And, and people who go there always leave there with, with a sense that, you know, having been impacted in some way. You know, and long may that continue. But I think there's only so long that that it it will kind of give that that same message, because even now a lot of the buildings are not recognisable as buildings. You know, it, 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 the grass has grown over certain places, and yeah, it is changed. So so there's there, you know there's an active kind of process now where they are reevaluating what happens to it next. And I think for a long time, while Robert Ebra particularly was still alive, he did a lot of work with, on the subject of, of, of ensuring reconciliation with Germany over time. And that, mm-hmm. that kind of feels like it's something which belongs to the past now, doesn't it? In terms of that reconciliation, in terms of recovering from the war, yeah. You know, now it's about maintaining uh, unity within Europe. And that perhaps isn't quite the message that Orador, or isn't the story that Orador tells. Uh, but I, I, I just think it, it, will, it will degrade with time and weather. Yeah. And probably not in any of our lifetimes will it be taken away. Well... Thank you very much, Robert. Thank you very much. Cause that's, that, that's shed an awful lot of light into, into both the incident and the village and into occupied France. And I, I have to confess, you know, I knew Oradosa Glen, but I knew the first 30 seconds of the world at war. Yeah. You know, you, you know, the massacre, you just don't know the, uh, don't know the village. And I will be, I haven't read it yet, but I will absolutely be reading the book. So, so thank you very much. Thank you. Well, if you'd like to know more about Robert's work, then you should start with his excellent range of books, which are going to be available in the History Rage bookshop. And we're going to have links to those. And you can follow Robert on Twitter uh, at Pike Robert. But once again, although we end on a dark note, I've really got so much out of this. Yeah, great. Yeah, great to speak to you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I do hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as you can enjoy such a subject. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Baffle. I am at Kyle G History. And if you're loving this, then why not join the Angry Mob on Patreon? Because your £5 per month will get you early episodes, entry into all of our prize draws, and the invite to put questions to future guests. And of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. We're going to take a little break for a fortnight now because we're at the end of a series, but we'll be coming back in two weeks' time and we hope you'll all join us then. Thank you very much. Stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, 
it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.